Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, the library of sessions recorded at the Rabbit Room's annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today, we're excited to share a session led by James Paul called Imagining the New Creation from 2021's Hutchmoot Homebound. Many have a distorted view of what Christians believe about heaven. In this session, James Paul discusses what the Bible actually teaches about the new earth and helps us attune our desires to its coming. Enjoy. Good. It's a privilege to be invited to speak at uh, this year's Hutchmoot Homebound. And I'm actually recording this at Labrie Fellowship in Hampshire in England. And I have some of the Labrie students in the room with me uh, who are staying with us this term. And for those of you who are joining Hutchmoot and don't know what Labrie is, uh, the Labrie communities are are study centres around the world where we invite people to come and stay with us and really just give them the time, the space to wrestle through their questions about truth and relevance of Christian faith. And it was started in the 1950s by Francis and Edith Schaefer in Switzerland. Um, We had the privilege of welcoming uh, Andrew and Jamie Peterson to our community a few times in the past and and also got a few from Nashville here, haven't we, (laughs) In, uh, in, in, in the audience here at Labrie. And my name is Jim Paul. I'm the team director of Labrie Fellowship here in the UK and have lived and worked here together with Mary and my wife and our two boys for the past 17 years. And before that, I was a palliative care doctor in London, specialising in uh, care of the terminally ill. And it's partly the questions that dying patients have asked me and also the questions that Labrie students ask that have really formed the basis of starting me thinking about heaven um, and all kinds of questions that uh, over the years have come, been asked of me, what exactly is heaven? What will it be like? And where is it? And why can't science find heaven? And what does heaven have to do with our lives here on earth? And it's these kind of questions that eventually led me to write a book uh, called What on Earth is Heaven? Uh, which came out this year and and Rabbit Room very kindly are stocking in their store, uh, where I try to look at those questions and try to give answers that that really connect uh, with people and the questions they're asking. And the subject of this lecture is really a spin-off from that. Um, And it's, it's lots of material that I would love to have put in the book, but otherwise it would have been about three times as long. So, um, these are parts of the book that didn't get in, but I hope that um, uh, the kind of issues that it deals with will be really interesting and, and stimulating. And the, the title I've given the lecture is called Imagining the New Creation. Um, the Importance of Art and Literature for Desiring God's Good Future. And it fits really well with um, the book that came. I actually got my moot Moot kit this morning arrived all the way from Nashville. It's got lots of goodies in it um, for those who haven't opened them, um, including a, this parcel says Pandora's parcel. Once opened, chaos will reign. Probably do not open until directed to do so by Hutch Minions. <laughs> That's very intriguing. Another one which says um, you shall not pass. 
The opening of this parcel is strictly forbidden. Do not venture within until instructed. I've kept it sealed up until, until the time. But uh, one of the other things that came in the, in the moot kit was um, Malcolm Geitz lifting the veil, Imagination and the Kingdom of God. And um, I think this lecture, I hope anyway, it will fit very well with uh, that book. And, and I know Malcolm's also teaching at the Hutch Moot. So... To start um, thinking about where we are at the moment, the Canadian Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor has said in his book A Secular Age that we live today in what he calls the imminent frame. The imminent meaning the world of the here and now. As he calls it in the book, it's, it's a world of exclusive humanism which he describes as a way of being in the world that attempts to offer significance without transcendence. A way of being in the world that offers significance without transcendence. So in other words, um, it's a way of being in the world without anything greater or beyond the material contingencies that surround us. And he's described the modern self, the, you and me, uh, that live in this world as the buffered self, and by buffered, he sort of means protected or immune to all meaning except the chosen meaning of the inner self. So we're sort of protected, we're insulated or isolated in our interiority. There's no meaning outside of oneself that can break in. It's only the meaning that one chooses within oneself that is important. And... I think that one could say that this, this way of looking at the world, this imminent frame, is something that Christians largely live in too, because we live in the world, surrounded by the same cultural milieu as everyone else. We're exposed to the same social media, the same economic systems, education, science, advertising, leisure pursuits, the same kind of values which is why in uh, this present generation, I'll include myself in that, even though we're Christians, we might find, for example, the idea of the Christian life as sacrifice less palatable than past generations did. Because to live sacrificially for the good of others requires the belief that there's more than just the imminent frame. If there's only just the world that surrounds you, it doesn't really make sense to make a sacrifice. It requires some bigger story um, that makes sense and is meaningful. So, and perhaps one of the results of this imminent frame is that the hope of God's good futures disappeared from many Christians' horizon. Um, like our culture, we put all our hope in the imminent frame alone. And you could, I guess, analyse, say, contemporary worship music to illustrate this and think about the way that Today, I would say probably worship songs are more likely to focus on the present emotional relationship with Jesus than on a future hope. Now, obviously, that's not totally true, but on the whole, uh, compared to, say, you know, the great classic hymns of the 18th and 19th century. And especially if you compare um, the, the present worship music, say, to African-American spirituals, which grew out of a period of intense suffering from slavery, but express a deep longing for God's good future. However, you could also say that this sort of, um, this focus on the imminent, even for Christians, is also a pendulum swing. 
against a past Christianity that, that was so focused on a sort of otherworldly life future to come that it denied the goodness of the imminent world around us, a kind of Christianity which was so world-denying that it had a dualism between earthly sin now and heavenly glory to come. So the question that I want to think about is how can we recapture a desire or a longing for God's good future which doesn't disengage us from participating in God's kingdom here and now on earth? And I'd like to start uh, just by sharing and reading a bit from the beginning of of my book about heaven, What on Earth is Heaven, to to try to set out some of the question that that kind of came to me. And this actually happened quite a number of years ago when I was um, on on an aeroplane flight to Warsaw. So let me read. I was a Christian. I was going to heaven. The only problem was I didn't want to go there. This sudden realisation came to me as I was waiting to take off on a flight from London to Warsaw. I don't like flying. Flying makes me nervous. I would be fine if I was flying the plane, but trusting my life to someone else I don't know is another matter. So I was sitting there imagining the plane crashing, contemplating death and what comes after death, when I suddenly realised that I didn't really want to go to heaven. I loved this life. I loved the feeling of sun on my face, the taste of olives on my tongue, the comfort of a hug, the smell of freshly washed linen. I loved walking in the English countryside. I loved the colours of spring. I loved jumping into a swimming pool on a hot day and feeling the cool water make my skin tingle. Nothing about heaven or the images of heaven I had been given excited me. Being a disembodied spirit living forever in an amorphous, shapeless future just didn't have any appeal. Floating on clouds, singing praise and worship choruses for eternity just didn't attract me. Yet this all felt so wrong. Surely as the greatest joy and fulfilment of the Christian life, I should want to go to heaven. Looking back on that experience, I now see sort of two problems with my view of heaven back then. The first was a failure of desire. I didn't desire God's good future. I, I didn't want to go to heaven. I had no desire that motivated me towards what God promised for the future and to live now in the light of that future. But underlying this actually was another failure which I hope to address in this lecture, which is a failure of the imagination. My images, my ideas of heaven were so anemic and abstract and unattractive. And in a way, sort of heaven seemed so inaccessible, so unconnected to my earthly self that they generated very little desire to be with God in his heavenly paradise. Let me just read, read a little bit again from, um, from What on Earth is Heaven. Of course, the idea of heaven wasn't a total blank to me before I became a Christian. My father loves architecture and history, so our summer holidays in Europe were filled with visits to medieval cathedrals. As a child, I was more interested in the cheap football shirts for sale in the market stalls that filled the cathedral piazzas, but I would dutifully enter these dark cavernous spaces and look around. I remember gazing up at the depictions of heaven that often covered the inside of the domes of these huge cathedrals. 
The paintings were often done in perspective so that the space within the dome seemed to recede ever higher towards a sphere that existed above this earthly realm. Beyond a layer of clouds was a world filled with angelic beings, depicted as what I can only describe as fat babies with wings, who were singing God's praises while playing harps. Further above was the heavenly throne itself, from where God, a venerable old man with a flowing white beard, surveyed the earth below. Here is a a good example of that kind of um, cathedral painting. This is The Last Judgment by Giorgio Vasari, beneath the dome of Florence Cathedral, painted in 1572-79, as I'm sure you can appreciate, it took him quite a long time to paint this. Uh, it's called uh, Tecnico di Sotto in Su, which is seen, means seen from below, in other words, in perspective. And in it, he, he depicts heaven and hell. And uh, actually, this is, this is a photograph taken at night, but if, if you look at it by day... <coughs> You can see the lantern, the clouds. It's called a lantern where there's, you know, a glass sort of box on top of the dome which captures the light and funnels it in through the top of the dome. Um, And um, so it gives you the appearance that you're looking straight up into heaven. Uh, This is another one. This is in the Cathedral in Parma. This is the Assumption of of the Virgin by Corrigio, um, also from the 16th century. Um, and it shows Mary being taken up into the highest heaven. You can see the, the, the light, the just pure light. Um, here's a little detail. Um, that's Mary's dress, and it shows um, these putti, as, as they're called, technically in art history. I call them fat babies with wings. Uh, or, or, you know, and often in this kind of art, particularly the Baroque art of this period, you, you see these kind of images, and it's interesting. They, you know, these are called cherubs. Um, or and they become then confused with a sort of um, the the um, idea of Cupid as well antiquity, the um, sort of minor god Cupid, the god of love who fires his arrow that pierces people. Um, but obviously the word cherub, these fat babies with wings, comes from um, the biblical word cherubim. And actually, if you encountered a cherubim, it would probably be more likely to look like this. This is a statue from the British Museum in London from um, an Assyrian palace um, I think of, of one of the kings. I think Ashburnipal is his name. And you can see it was a far more frightening <laughs> creature that actually guarded the, the entrance to the, to the temple, to the palace. Um, but what you see in, in those images, if, if I just go back, is, is this kind of, in a sense, a fixed geography of heaven, earth and hell. And I'm going to explore more how that's come about through Dante, in particular Dante's Divine Comedy. We'll explore that today. But, but um, I think these sort of experiences gave me a, a, a sense of a very distant heaven. You see a heaven above and beyond. Um, they do break the imminent frame. So they do have, there is an opening from the imminent in, into the eternal in, into the heavenly. But they actually left me with the question then, what did heaven actually do have to do with earth? Heaven seems so separate from our earthly lives and, and um, the truly good things we enjoy now. It, it appeared to be a place where we have to leave the earth completely behind and enter this otherworldly place, uh, non-material, just into pure light. 
Um, and that left we with another question. What would we be doing for all eternity in heaven? Um, from church, I picked up, I only became a Christian in my late teens, but when I went to church after that, I picked up the idea we would be worshipping God forever. And what that filled my mind was with a, an endless church praise and worship session. And um, I love listening to music, but I'm not very good at singing. And uh, my, my boys tell me that I can sing one note very well, but that's all I can do. Um, so what would it like to be a soul in heaven? That's, that's what I was, was taught, that we would be souls in heaven amid these clouds and these fat babies with wings. It's interesting that these kinds of images have found their way into popular culture too. Um, and um, this is a, a, a little still from... from Ice, Ice Age, the meltdown. I don't know if you've ever seen this sequence where Scrap, who's the, this sort of um, prehistoric saber-toothed squirrel, he dies and he goes to this nut heaven, acorn heaven, and um, where he floats around on these clouds um, until he sees you know, the highest heaven where there's this, the, the largest nut that he's ever seen in his life. Um, the Simpsons also has many depictions of, um, of heaven and hell. <laughs> And um, uh, including all the Simpsons being transformed into angels with wings and halos when they, when they visit heaven. Here's, here's um, Homer on his way up. And um, there, here's another um, uh, picture. When I, when I actually um, uh, had my book published, um, it, it went on the Amazon list to do with um, the afterlife or something like that. And um, I, I saw that my ranking was well below all the books to do with do pets go to heaven. And um, here, here is a painting by an artist, Jim Warren, called All Dogs Go to Heaven. And um, thank you to Sally Phoenix, uh, who's a friend of Labrie here, who um, shared this, this painting with me. Um, and of course, you know, there's also contemporary Christian art, much of it, um, has this idea of going up this stairway to a distant place. This is um, Stairway to Paradise by the much loved by some and much derided by others Christian artist Thomas Kincaid. Um, and he has a lot of depictions. Um, interestingly, nearly all of them empty of people, not even dogs <laughs> in, the, in these ones. So... <clears throat> What these images of heaven did to me, I think, is reinforce, in one sense, and perhaps they, they do the same for you, the implausibility of heaven. Um, they're so sort of disconnected, undesirable, maybe unimaginable, um, that, that, that it makes a future beyond, beyond the imminent frame um, implausible. And it was this realisation on that plane to Warsaw that drew me um, uh, to pray to God, actually, to help me to understand heaven and to long for heaven, to desire heaven and eventually write the book. And what I'd like to do in the rest of the lecture really is explore art and literature that's really helped me and I hope it will help you to imagine God's good future in a better way and then to desire it in a way that actually connects and transforms the way that we live now. But before we look at art and literature, I just want to say something about the role of imagination and of, and of desire in Christian faith. And I guess in, in his book, Lifting the Veil, Malcolm Guy will do that way better than I can. But I, I just want to say a tiny bit about it. Because some Christians you know, might immediately be uncomfortable with both those issues of desire and imagination. 
In terms of desire, some Christians might argue that Christian faith is about dying to desire and to the self, taking up one's cross, sacrificing oneself for the good of others. The Christian life is a a sort of via negativa, a a negative road of self-denial. And others might point to actually the problem, as I discussed it on that plane at the beginning of my book, is that, that actually I desired the things of this earth too much. And in terms of imagination, see many Christians are very wary of imagination as something that can only lead us into fantasy or even heresy and away from clear biblical fact and doctrine. So it's important here to say something about the proper use of imagination. And I think the proper use of imagination is essential if we're going to desire the good and help us break out of the grip of the imminent frame. Because if we can't imagine anything better than what's here, then we're going to get stuck in the imminent frame. Maren and my wife said to me the other day when we were walking on, on the, in the countryside here, it's, the Christian life is not just about saying no to everything, but desiring something richer and better. Um, And that's so true. So first, the place of desire. And I want to read to you just the beginning of what C.S., the beginning of um, C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory, which uh, from he gave in 1942. Um, And just read you this because he talks about this issue of desire. This is C.S. Lewis. If you ask 20 good people today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So Lewis's point there is that most of the time our desire is not too strong but too weak and the gospel contains unblushing promises of reward as he says we're like an ignorant child making mud pies in the in the gutter because we cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea and note that word you know, that's in there imagine 
that we cannot imagine what is meant by holiday at the sea. Or in terms I used earlier, we are far too content with the imminent frame because we cannot imagine what is meant by eternity. Something like that. So Lewis is pointing to the crucial role that imagination plays in desiring the better, not just the good now. And this is exactly the point that the poet and uh, Anglican chaplain, academic and academic Malcolm Guite makes in a wonderful lecture that, that I recently came across called Imagination and Incarnation. And in this lecture, Geit explores these lines from um, Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, in which, uh, I think this is the Duke, he says, The poet's eye, in fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the form of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them into shapes and gives to airy nothing the local habitation, and a name. And I was particularly struck when I, when I heard these lines of the, the doth glance from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven, because, uh, you know, of writing this book and thinking about heaven. And this line here, and in the lecture, Geit explains how the imagination can make what is universal, what is transcendent, eternal, heavenly, into what is particular and earthly and imminent. And that's the glance from heaven to earth. Do you see what I mean? It makes what is yeah, transcendent, what is beyond, understandable by making it into things of earth that we can understand. But also how the imagination also does the reverse. It can start with something earthly and particular and use that to explore heavenly things. That's the glance from earth to heaven. And it... Um, in both cases, the idea is that we give shape and name to things unknown so that we know them better and love them more and want them more. And the most wonderful of all uh, is that the incarnation, the, the incarnation of the second person, the Trinity, as Jesus Christ does both these things, it gives form on earth to things in heaven. So Jesus Christ is the eternal world word, the eternal word of God. And yet he becomes a particular man. So the word became flesh. So, so the eternal becomes particular. And then also the particular then becomes eternal because when Philip asked Jesus, show us the father, what does Philip say? He doesn't say, let me show you, you know, um, the, the Florentine. It wasn't painted in obviously the dome of the, you know, the, the Duomo in Florence. He, Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So, you know, the whole point of the incarnation is that the eternal becomes particular. And actually, through that particularity, we know the eternal better. Do you see what it's me? So there's this link and um, um, link there. The theme of how imagination links with desire is also something that the Oxford professor and author of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, picks up in his essay on fairy stories. And Tolkien uh, writes in that essay about what he calls eucatastrophe. I don't know if you've come across that term before, but you means good. And obviously catastrophe is a disaster, but it sort of means in good disaster. Or as he puts it, that sudden joyous turn in a fairy story when all seems lost, 
but by a sudden miraculous grace, that's his quote, a sudden miraculous grace, there is a reversal and, and all is saved. And in fairy stories, Tolkien says this idea of eucatastrophe, that, that everything seems to be going you know, wrong and the disaster, and then suddenly a sudden miraculous grace, it's turned around. The, he says this is a far-off gleam or echo of evangelium, evangelium, the good news of the gospel. The universal final defeat isn't the end of the story. And, and he writes this, um, uh, you catastrophe, so this is, this is me starting, in fairy story gives us, and then this is quoting Tolkien in that essay, a piercing glimpse of joy, of heart's desire, that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of story and lets a gleam come through. So Tolkien there is, is writing about how, the, how stories, the imagination, can let this gleam come through. Um, I love the way it's interesting, he says that for a moment passes outside the frame. He wasn't thinking about the imminent frame, but I mean, he was. He didn't have that, you know, the term that Charles Taylor uses, but that's what he's talking about. And it breaks the very web of story and lets a gleam come through. So he sees, he says this, the Gospels contain a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe, by which he means the cross and the resurrection. You know, the moment when Satan thinks he has last won by killing the Son of God, and then he has actually achieved salvation for humankind. So Tolkien sees this very strong link between imagination and truth, but, and then desiring the good. And I think that comes out very strongly, those of you who know The Lord of the Rings and love that story. And Francis Schaeffer, who founded the Libri communities, in, in his book, He's There and He's Not Silent, makes a similar point when he writes that modern epistemology, so modern theories of knowledge, only lead to, and this is a quote, the awful nightmare of the confusion between reality and fantasy. But um, how the Christian can have reality and fantasy without being threatened, he says, because God is there and has spoken into his world and to human beings. So he says the Christian should be the person, this is a quote, the Christian should be the person who is alive, whose imagination absolutely boils over, which moves, which produces something different from God's world because God has made us to be creative. So I, I love that. He's that idea of our imagination boiling over. Elsewhere, he, he, he calls it the flaming imagination. Christians should have a flaming imagination because we're not afraid, actually, of, of, of disappearing into fantasy because God has spoken and the imagination can actually lead us towards truth um, in, uh, in the arts. Um, so um, I, I think this is what we find in the scriptures as well an imagination that boils over. If you think of these kind of things that where in the book of Job, it says, where, God says, where were you when I laid the cornerstone of the earth while the morning stars sang together and all the angels sang for joy? Or, or Isaiah writing, the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. You just think, of, you know, that, that's the imagination boiling over. Or, or um, you know, the imagination that told the parable of the Good Samaritan or of the prodigal son. 
Um, and I could go, go on and on and on. Um, the imagination helps us glimpse what is true and real and beautiful and good, and then through glimpsing it, desiring it better in a way that changes how we live. So having thought about the importance of imagination in exciting our desire, I want now to think about um, what it is also we are imagining. What is God's good future that the Bible promises? Now, I've started this lecture by describing that good future as heaven, and I did that quite deliberately. And as we have seen, that's the focus of much historic and contemporary art. And... um, uh, here's tree and leaf, sorry, got my slides slightly out. That's Tolkien. That, that, um, the On Fairy Stories is often published in, his, in his, this small anthology, Tree and Leaf. So um, back to yeah, contemporary art that, that kind of visualises heaven. So here is um, something again that Sally Phoenix uh, shared with me. This is by a contemporary artist called Akian Kramerik, who um, since the age of nine, I think, has been having visions and painting these visions of heaven. So this is quite um, typical of what you might find with, complete with, I think it's got um, winged horses, is that right? (laughs) Winged horses and um, the celestial city. This is another one um, picturing the new Jerusalem, the celestial city, um, and this idea of heaven. But as as I explore in in my book, I think this is a really deep misunderstanding of God's good future for planet Earth, because the Bible story doesn't move from Earth to heaven, but from creation to new creation. If you think from Genesis to Revelation, it's not the story of how we move from Earth to heaven, but the story of how we move from creation to new creation. And the Bible doesn't end with the destruction of the Earth, but actually with heaven and earth being brought together in one joyful reality. And that's what John sees in his vision at the end of Revelation, um, the city of God coming out of heaven to be on earth and God saying, now my dwelling is with my people. So um, what I try to do in the book is work with this idea of heaven as less being this sort of place up there somewhere in the clouds or somewhere out in the universe, but more the idea of it's the dimension where God's will is done. And that's the kind of definition I I try to to work with. Somehow heaven is the deepest reality because it's the the place where God's will is done. And that's why the biblical imagery most commonly has the idea of that's where God's throne is, because where a king is, or a queen, that's where their throne is, that's where they rule from, and it's where their will is done. And then it goes out from there into their, into their kingdom. So I work with this idea of heaven as being, it's, it's the dimension of reality where God's will is done. And the story of the Bible then, when you begin to think about it, is, is actually the story of um, these dimensions of heaven and earth. So the earthly dimensions that God makes and heaven, the dimension of his rule. And the Bible story starts in a heavenly garden on earth. It is a place on earth where God's will is done. It's a touching place of heaven and earth. And then heaven and earth are separated by humanity's rebellion against God. And then the rest of the story of the Bible is about how God keeps opening doors between heaven and earth. So that not so that we can escape to heaven, but actually so 
the power of heaven can come to redeem the earth. And one of those um, is um, Jacob's Ladder, um, where we see what, what Led Zeppelin called a stairway to heaven in the you know, supergroup Led Zeppelin 1971, their, their, their wonderful song, Stairway to Heaven. But actually, I think Led Zeppelin got it wrong because what we read in this account where, where Jacob, you know, Jacob is on the run, uh, he's swindled his brother, he's in the wilderness and he goes to sleep and has this dream, is um, not a stairway to heaven, but a stairway from heaven. Um, because at the end of his dream, he, he says this, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. This is the gate of heaven. And he's not invited up into heaven, but actually he's reassured of God's presence with him on earth and then goes off into his life, reassured with that presence. I came across this, um, this art installation called Descent by Anna Freeman Bentley. Um, and uh, she made it in 2011. It's, it's, it's oil on eight panel, panels supported by scaffolding. I think this is where it, is on exhibit, where it was on exhibit at Chichester Cathedral, which is not very far from us. Um, and um, I'll just read you a little bit about what, what she writes, um, or sorry, what is written in, this is in the, um, the commentary. Uh, I don't know if you've come across a thing called the visual commentary on scripture. Have you come across that? You can subscribe to it. And I think every week or so they send you um, three uh, works of art that illustrate a certain part of the Bible. So this would have been together with three others that illustrated the um, this, the, the stairway from heaven. Um, actually, one of the others is on Malcolm Geith's um, book, which is uh, William Blake's picture. I'm going to talk about Blake in a minute. Uh, William Blake's picture um, of, uh, the, of Jacob's dream. But I'll read you what, what it says here um, uh, in the commentary on, it, on the visual commentary on scripture. So it's called Descent. <clears throat> the painting tapers to a narrow top where we glimpse an opening. I'll just show you the top. Yeah, that's the top of the painting. Um, French philosopher Gilles Deleuze speaks of the world of human experience in terms of interconnected levels, or as Anthony Vidler describes it, two stories, the one material, the other spiritual, joined by a stair of infinite folds. From one perspective, the painting reaches up to touch the untouchable, stretching from earth to heaven. Concurrently, however, dissent questions whether the central image of this story in Genesis is best conceived as a stairway to heaven. The ladder is let down into Jacob's physical and moral wilderness. Rather than depending on the shaky foundations of his past actions and current circumstances, affirmation and encouragement are anchored in the Lord who stood above it. Or actually you could say the Lord who was there with him. <laughs> Something like that. This is a stairway from heaven. So I love that sense. And in, 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 in my book, I talk about lots and lots of these, these kind of doorways that God opens. You could think of, you know, the burning bush or the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and, and many, many. And of course, in the ultimate one, the ultimate where God opens a door between heaven and earth is in Jesus Christ, the incarnation, because he is, you know, the eternal son of God become human flesh, fully God and fully human. 
And even after Jesus's ascension and resurrection, sorry, resurrection and ascension to heaven, this pattern actually of coming from heaven to earth is repeated in the giving of the Holy Spirit and then in Jesus' promises to return. So at his ascension, when the, when the disciples are looking up into heaven, there are two angels, it's interesting, who appear beside them on the earth. And the angels say, why are you looking up? And then they don't say, you know, um, you will go there to be with Jesus. They say Jesus will come back in the same way that he's gone. So the whole message, the whole movement is always from heaven to earth. So um, the biblical story isn't about the separation of heaven and earth, which some of those domes give you this idea, you've got to get right up there, but actually the union of heaven and earth. And this is not just something that's in the future, but something that's present reality too. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, where? And then he says, thy will be done, where? And then he says, on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the mission of Christians in the church is, is to actually be places where heaven and earth meet. Doorways between heaven, where God's will is done, and earth, through which the power of heaven can come to transform a hurting and broken world. And we are to do that until Jesus comes again. So I, I think what our imagination is there to help us desire is not a far off, distant, immaterial future heaven where we are souls floating in clouds, but actually to desire the new creation. That's what we should say, desiring the new creation. And actually to see heaven breaking through into a broken and hurting world. We're looking for hints or rumours of another country beyond the imminent frame or for a gleam that comes through, as Tolkien puts it, a bigger story that gives shape to this mortal coil. What might it look like for the temporal to be clothed in glory, not nullified by glory? There's um, a beautiful uh, passage in um, Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead, and some of you know that and, and, and uh, probably uh, love, love that book, um, where it's, it's a story of the Reverend John Ames, who is coming to the end of his life. He's a, been a pastor all his life um, and he's dying. And he, he married, remarried after his first wife died very late in life and has a young son. And he writes these letters to his son. And, and this is what, what he says, um, what we're looking for. The possibility of an existence beyond this one, by which I mean a reality embracing this one, but exceeding it. The way, for example, this world embraces and exceeds Soapy's understanding of it. Soapy is their cat, by the way, <laughs> who he talks about often. And I love those two words. You know, we're looking for something that embraces but exceeds, not something that denies and nullifies or something which you know, just focuses on the imminent, but it embraces but exceeds. And art and literature are a wonderful doorway through which this, this gleam that embraces yet exceeds can pass. I love um, in, in Doug McElvey's um, Every Moment Holy, which, which Rabbit Room um, publish, uh, there's, a, there's a liturgy uh, for an artist before taking the stage. Um, and, and this is what, what it says. Let my brief service be like the opening of a window through which the breezes of a far country might blow, stirring eternal longings of life. 
I like that. So that's the prayer before you know an artist takes the stage that that they would open this window or this door through which a, you know a rumor of heaven, a gleam would come through. And I'd love here just to share some photographs with you, which which I think do this. And these are taken by a friend of mine and a friend of Labrie, Kurt Simonson, who's an associate professor of photography at, at the Biola University in California. And um, he's done a series of photographs called A Thin Silence, which he actually took at the Labrie communities in the UK and Sweden. And I'll read you what he writes um, about this, um, as well as just show you some of the photographs. So this is one, I think, from the Swedish Labrie. There is a story in the Hebrew scriptures about expecting God to be revealed in a dramatic gesture, like an earthquake or a fire but instead finding that God reveals himself in a low whisper, a thin silence. This is the lesson of Labrie. Those of us who come here might be hoping for a grand revelation. I'll just show you another one. Those of us who come here might be hoping for a grand revelation about modern life or redemption from personal demons, but instead we find God in the beauty of the little things like chores, shared meals, and even the movement of light across a table. Some of you that have been to the English Library may recognise the bathroom up, up on the first floor, the tiles and the light that comes through. And here's a final one uh, taken from our chapel. I love these images that, that Kurt has, has, has made because... Um, you know, they exemplify everyday objects and also, in a sense, the ordinary, maybe even the dirty that you don't look at, um, the broken tiles in the bathroom. But there's something that comes through. And I call this embracing yet exceeding idea, transfiguration. The, the, um, and, you know, you know, in the Bible, the transfiguration is an event told in the Gospels where the three disciples, Peter, James and John, see the ordinary Jesus transfigured. And uh, I'll just read a little bit about that um, <clears throat> from my book. He said, um, in the New Testament, there's an occasion when three of Jesus' disciples experienced something of reality that they could not normally see. Jesus took Peter, James and John up a high mountain where they saw Jesus transfigured in his glory. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light, as Matthew says. One moment, the three disciples saw the visible Jesus they knew from their everyday earthly lives, the Jesus who was dressed in coarsely woven, dull-coloured, dust-covered clothes. The next moment, the invisible had been made visible, and they saw Jesus revealed as the Christ, the radiant King of glory. They saw that there was more to Jesus than just his earthly dimensions. And although this extra dimension was normally invisible to them, it was no less real than the everyday Jesus. The transfigured Jesus wasn't less material or more ethereal. He wasn't just a soul released from the confines of matter. The transfigured Jesus was more real, more solid, a stunningly more complete reality than the Jesus they lived with every day. So that's transfiguration. And I think it, it happens in the, these, you know, more than we think. 
um, transfiguration. I, I talk about it in the book a bit like, you know, if you lived in a two-dimensional world and then the third dimension comes in and the two-dimensional world just has triangles and squares and circles. But when the third dimension comes in, it, it transfigures them into pyramids and cubes and spheres. Um, it completes reality. Uh, let me read a little bit from Gilead again, um, uh, where um, the Reverend Ames talks in one of his letters about this. He says this, um, It has seemed to me sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor grey ember of creation and it turns to radiance for a moment or a year or the span of a life. And then it sinks back into itself again. And to look at it, no one would know it had anything to do with fire or light. That is what I said in the Pentecost sermon. I have reflected on that sermon and there is some truth in it. But the Lord is more constant and far more extravagant than it seems to imply. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. Only who could have the courage to see it? I love that last question, who has the courage to see it? And I think artists are often those people who have the courage to see transfiguration and call our attention to it in, in the broken, even in the brokenness of life. Another writer that, that I really love um, and enjoy just, just reading this past year is Elizabeth Googe. I don't know if any of you know Elizabeth Googe. Um, she was a, a, a devout Christian, the daughter of a principal of a theological college, and wrote her, her most famous book is The Little White Horse, which um, J.K. Rowling said was one of um, the inspirations for Harry Potter. Um, and um, I'll read you a little bit uh, from The Scent of Water. It's a novel that I just read recently. She wrote it in 1963. And this is a bit where, where a very strange elderly curate comes to see um, the young Mary. She's the, she's the protagonist of the story who's very confused in life and an atheist. And um, they have a conversation which, which she doesn't particularly like, Mary. But then she says this um, about, about this strange curate. And then suddenly he caught sight of a tortoiseshell butterfly drifting down the path and he gave an exclamation of incredulous joy and ran after it. When I caught up with him, he was standing in front of the Budlia tree, which was covered with butterflies like it nearly always is, and he was speechless with wonder, his face absorbed as a child's when the candle had been lit on the Christmas tree. It was almost as though the butterflies shone on him and lit his face, or else it was the other way around. For a moment there seemed light everywhere, though it was a grey day. It was queer and I didn't want to move until there was a sound of voices and we saw Mother and her guests coming out into the garden. The old man looked around at me and the light had been wiped off his face. It was puckered and distressed like a sad monkey's and he said to me in a hoarse whisper, My dear, I think I should be going. And I realised that he was terrified of mother and her guests. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. And uh, yeah, I'd heartily recommend getting into Elizabeth Googe if, um, uh, if, 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 if you want to. So um, I think this then is the problem with a lot of the art depicting heaven that we looked at previously. So that 
um, as beautiful and magnificent works of art as they are, as that Duomo in Florence, or um, perhaps less beautiful and magnificent, that contemporary picture of the New Jerusalem. Um, they, you know, often these things, they, they show a reality that exceeds the earth, but doesn't embrace it. It's so transcendent, it's hard to imagine what it is. It's so disconnected. And I, I think this problem stretches right back to um, some of the really formative writings about heaven um, and, and right back to uh, Dante um, and his divine comedy. Um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about Dante and then Milton, who... Um, wrote another epic poem about heaven and earth, and then William Blake, before just finishing with a few other works of art I want to show you. Sorry that um, apologies is going on. <laughs> I knew there was too much in this lecture. I love, I lo I love these things so much. Okay, so if you're not familiar with Dante, he, he um, lived um, at the end of the 13th and early 14th century, and he wrote this um, epic poem called The Divine Comedy, between 1308 and 1320. Um, it's called a comedy, not because it's a bundle of laughs, sorry to, if you're expecting a lot of laughs, but because it is a happy ending. That's, so you get Shakespeare's comedies are a happy ending and his tragedies are a sad ending because it ends in, in heaven. And, and um, it's in the form of an epic poem. It was the first um, work to be written in the vernacular Italian rather than in Latin. It's written in a, in a Tuscan dialect, which then became Italian. Um, and it's, it's, it's an imaginative journey through hell, purgatory and heaven and an, and an allegory of the soul's journey towards God. And it, it's also actually a political and a philosophical treatise and maybe even more those things than theological in some ways. I think that might be controversial to say that. Um, so... The thing that Dante does is, in one sense, is he has this, this very, what I, I might call a fixed architecture of, of hell, earth and heaven, or hell, purgatory and heaven. And um, you can see in these diagrams, uh, Dante descends first through the nine circles of hell. Each level is given to a specific and graphically described punishment for those who have committed specific sins. For example, circle seven is where the violent are forced to drown in boiling blood, and if they surface, are shot with arrows by centaurs who watch over them. Dante then ascends the mountain of purgatory before eventually reaching Paradiso, heaven, again made up of nine celestial spheres, corresponding to the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the sphere of the fixed stars, the sphere of the prime mover. So if, if you know any, any Greek philosophy, you will know um, that idea in Aquinas. And topped all by what is termed the Empyrean, which is where God dwells himself in the highest heaven. So I hope in these um, pictures you, you can see a little bit of that, these, these all different levels. And so there's, there's this very sort of clear geography of hell, heaven, a purgatory in heaven. Now Dante's vision is beautiful and his poetry is masterful and, and it truly is one of, you know, one of the greatest poetic works uh, ever written. It's full of splendour and of light, but it's also in a way very much a platonic vision in the Platonic Plato tradition. Um, it's, the divine is, is abstract and impersonal 
And I'll just read you. This is a little bit from, uh, there are 33 cantos or chapters to do with heaven. And this is a little bit that, that in, from um, Canto 32. He says, let's direct our eyes to where the primal love resounds in silent light so that your intellect may enter insofar as it's allowed his mighty fire. That gives you, I mean, it's, it's beautiful poetry. Um, and then I'll, I'll read you one more excerpt. This is um, uh, from the last Canto 33. So it's, it's, he's reaching the highest heaven. Actually, um, when he gets there, because um, he's writing in the Catholic tradition, it's where Mary dwells. Um, and in fact, Jesus and, and God are never glimpsed other than in, in this light. And he looks at that light. And, and this is what he says. Um, here we go. Uh, this, in this slide as well, this is um, Gustave Doré's illustration of, um, of Dante's Divine Comedy from, from actually the 19th century. But it became very, very popular in um, the France at the time and has really also informed the Christian imagination. You probably recognise that. So this is looking up. You can see again that idea looking up into the highest heaven. So let me read this. This is in the translation by Clive James, actually the Australian poet and um, journalist uh, writer. I think that by the sharpness that I suffered from the force of that ray's vividness, the chance was high my eyesight. Had it been turned from that course would have been dazzled. Such indeed was why I dared, I now recall, to face the light straight on, so long that all my sight was spent upon it. In its depths I saw, packed tight, bound in one book of love, all that is sent abroad through the universe as leaves torn out and scattered. Single, separate things and any kind of quality that cleaves to then and enters, and whatever brings a partial framework to some area of all that multiplicity. But here, all things and links that ever were and are were fused together so that they might appear to me as one pure light. I know I saw the universal form of this intact complexity because my joy, the more I tell of it, expands to mark the act of speaking. So that's quite wordy. You probably want to re read that again. But you see the way he, he's thinking about you know, the highest heaven. It, it's this point. I mean, it's beautiful description in a way. But it's also this point where he experiences the universal form of this intact complexity. So it's very, you know, Aristotelian. Um, Platonic, this idea of the universal form and that brings together the many in the one. And that's something he's interested in. And Dante's poems, so again, written in the 1300s, early 1300s, became the key text for the me medieval imagination of heaven, hell and purgatory and influenced, you know, these, these paintings that we've already looked at. This, this is one on, on the, on the um, left-hand side here. Um, it, of, they're called doom paintings, paintings of judgment. This is at St. Thomas's Church in Salisbury, painted in 1470. And um, it's a depiction, again, of judgment um, and, and a sort of heaven at the top and then people going into hell. And the hell, um, you can't see it on that picture, but here's another one from um, Fra Angelico, The Last Judgment. And you can see the people in hell being subject to various tortures depending on their um, sins in this life. 
Okay, so that's a bit about Dante, this, this very fixed structure became very powerful in the imagination. And then later on, 300 years later, John Milton, the Protestant poet, uh, wrote an epic poem of heaven and hell called Paradise Lost. And written in blank verse, it's one of the greatest works of English literature, and tells the story of, of uh, the war in heaven and the fall of Lucifer from his angelic position to hell, and then his temptation of Adam and Eve and their eventual expulsion from Eden. It's why it's called Paradise Lost. And, and it famously starts like this. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste wrought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. So like Dante's work, it's a masterpiece um, and the very sound and the rhythm of the words. I was reading something written by Philip Pullman, you know, who wrote His Dark Materials. He talked about as a child, not understanding really almost a word of it, just the rhythm of the words and the sound of them captured his imagination. And the Romantic poet, then in, the, in um, a couple, um, yeah, 150 years later, William Blake, what he pointed out about John Milton is that Satan gets all the best scenes and all the best lines. Um, hell is this place full of passion and power and visceral physicality and Satan a kind of tragic hero, whereas heaven becomes this sort of tame, passionless world and God a bit like a despotic, despotic bully. I'll, re I'll read you just another bit. Um, and this is, you'll recognise this uh, because, uh, quote. This is where, when, when Lucifer is thrown for the first time into hell, he says this. Um, Farewell, happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell receive thy new possessor. One who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater? Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell." Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So, you know, he gets, he's this sort of a tragic hero um, and, you know, God's this bully who only rules by his thunder or something like that. I mean, this, obviously that's Satan talking. Um, and I think the assessment is very unfair, but um, uh, Philip Pullman, the new, the new atheist, based his, you know, dark materials, that the word his dark materials is actually from... Um, from Milton's Paradise Lost. So, um, and William Blake, who um, was this romantic poet um, in the 18th, 19th century, uh, spanned, spanned that time, um, he, he wrote this. The reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when he wrote of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. So what Blake was saying is that, you know, if you're a real poet and you're full of desires, you know, your sort of hell is your, your place. Um, and of course, you know, Blake lived at the time of the French Revolution and he, 
he um, rejected institutional religion and um, and sort of conventional morality, and, and he wanted to embrace a new, you know, freedom and a new morality. Um, so um, he then resolved by writing another of the great classics about heaven and hell, but he called it the marriage of heaven and hell because he wanted to blend together passion, which he saw sort of was the provenance of hell and not heaven, with the divine. And so he wanted to see heaven and hell married. Okay, um, but I think we've already seen from Lewis when I read In the Weight of Glory that actually... Um, Passion doesn't belong in hell. Um, that actually desire is what right desire is leads us into heaven. And Lewis explains in that, as I said, how our desires properly direct us, the desire for the good. And actually the poet, through their passion, um, it should direct, their poetry should direct us to things that are greater. So art and literature that excites desire, that leads us deeper into the dimension of heaven. I want to look again at that. And there's no better place, actually, than to start than Lewis's The Great Divorce. Um, and um, this is, um, uh, Lewis wrote this in 1946. And actually, he wrote it as um, an imaginative journey, like Dante's comedy, Divine Comedy, and also an answer to Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell. He called it The Divorce, because actually, it's the divorce of heaven and hell. And at the beginning of that, Lewis quotes um, the author that he really loved, the Christian author, George MacDonald, who says, There is no escape. There is no heaven with a little hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. So he's, he's really saying the idea of the great divorce is, no, actually heaven and hell are divorced in this good future. And as um, in The Weight of Glory, Lewis is keen to illustrate in The Great Divorce that desire, properly understood, leads us further into heaven, not away from it. And in, in The Great Divorce, hell is not this passionate place seething with vis viscerality as it is sort of in Milton. But actually, if you ever read the book, you know, um, Lewis starts off journeying through hell, but it's a very dull anemic, suburban grayscape, where the only passions are suspicion and hatred and jealousy. And what happens in hell is that all the citizens, they're so suspicious and um, hate each other so much that they just move further and further away from one another until there's whole suburbs of this gray, sort of grayscape, smoggy, dirty place with just one person living in them because they, they've all moved so far away. But heaven, on the other hand, is this place of sensuous beauty, so real that when Lewis first arrives there, the grass of that land projects painfully into his feet because the grass of heaven is so real and solid compared to his as yet sort of ghost-like existence. And I'll just read you what this little bit, when he steps off the bus, he says... I was alone in the bus, this coming, it's a bus that takes him from, heaven to, from hell to heaven. Um, and he says, I got out. The light and coolness that drenched me were like those of summer morning, early morning, a minute or two before the sunrise, only that there was a certain difference. I had the sense of being in a larger space, 
perhaps even a larger sort of space than I'd ever known before. As if the sky were further off and the extent of the green plain wider that they could be on this little ball of earth. I had got out in some sense, which made the solar system itself seem an indoor affair. So he's really thinking of it's, it's, it's not less, it's not immaterial, it's more, it's materiality. Um, and I'm going way over time, so I'm just going to skip a little bit talking more about how desire, uh, he sees desire leading, leading us deeper into heaven. And of course, uh, you know, another great example, I think, of, of, of um, uh, Lewis's writing, which allows this gleam to come through that shows us uh, yeah, the real sort of visceral glory of heaven is found in um, the last battle. And um, it was actually reading this that became one of the answers to my prayer about heaven. And, and what I loved is that, that when the characters at the end of that book go through a door, they, they are into what you could call heaven. It's not some sort of ethereal cloud world but suddenly they realise that it, this is the real Narnia that they've got through to. And, it's, and then um, the Lord Diggory says, all of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And, and so everything that was good and true and beautiful in the old Narnia is there. And then he says, only more its real self. I love that phrase, only more its real self. Um, and um, I love this a little bit from Marilyn Robinson's um, Gilead, just to read again, um, where they pick up this theme because um, it's, it, it's so profound as to what the new creation will be like, not this amorphous, you know, cloudscape, but something that's more real. And this is where um, the dying pastor, John Ames, is sitting on a porch with his lifelong friend, who's also a pastor, um, Borton. And Ames writes this. Borton says he has more ideas about heaven every day. He said, mainly, I just think about the splendours of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by 10 or 12 if I had the energy. <laughs> he, he's a very tired. He's also dying at the end of his life. But two is much more than sufficient for my purposes. So he just, he's just sitting there, multiplying the feel of the wind by two multiplying the smell of the grass by two. Isn't that so beautiful? I just love that, that sense just to sit there and multiply everything by two. Um, something embracing. I love that you can, you can embrace this world, and, but exceeding it, multiplying it. Um, I'm going to cut, cut th through a bit. There's so, so much more I could say. Um, uh, there's, there's a... There's, you know, there's a deep sense in the scriptures as well of the continuity of this world with the next. Um, here's the last battle. Um, but here, um, uh, it, Paul talks about, says that nothing that we do in Christ, no, um, uh, your labor is not in vain because you know that your labor in the, sorry, nothing that you do in Christ is in vain because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Um, there's a sense of which the continuity between this world and the next. And of course, one, one of the greatest imaginative works, if you ever, um, which is, is 
sort of talking about this continuity is, is Tolkien's wonderful um, short story, Leaf by Niggle. I don't know if you've ever come across that, but if you haven't read it, it's not very long. It will take you, I know someone told me they read it recently, half an hour to read, probably half an hour, Leaf by Niggle. And, um, you know, it, it's a story about this, this man, Niggle, who, who has this, his life's work is this canvas which he keeps adding to, depicting this tree, and every leaf he paints, every leaf individually and uniquely. And uh, he never gets to finish it because his neighbour called Parrish keeps on interrupting him. And uh, when eventually he, he knows he's got to go on a journey, but he never prepares for the journey, which is it's death. But eventually he has to go on this journey. And um, there are various uh, parts in the story I won't go into, but at last he comes to this place where, where he sees this tree. It's a real tree. And then he realises that is his tree. And he's been, it's been sort of completed in a way, but, but there's still more to come. And, and actually it's glorified. And then Parrish comes along, who's also died a little time after him. And they suddenly realise that if they had cooperated in this life, Parrish is this neighbour who's always sort of bothering him because he's a bit sickly, but Parrish loves gardening. And they realise that if they if they co- cooperated in this life, things could have been, you know, in, that, in their creations even better. And then in the, in, the, in the life to come, in the new creation, they begin to cooperate together. And it's funny because, um, you know, then Niggle starts to become interested in gardening and Parrish begins to love trees and they, they share their love. Um, so there's so much more to say. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm cutting that short, but I'm just going to finish with two artworks to show you, and um, I've gone way over time, but I hope you can tell I love thinking about this. So um, this is uh, something I came across um, by an artist called Edward Hicks, who's a Quaker from the 19th century. And um, this is a painting called The Peaceable Kingdom. Uh, And Hicks painted this scene, I think, 62 times during his lifetime. He lived in Pennsylvania in the USA. And it, it represents the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 11. You know, the calf and the lion and the yearling will lie down together and a little child will lead them. It's a prophecy of new creation, of creation being made new by the coming of God's Messiah, the good things of the earth made heavenly through Christ. And I love it in its physicality, its materiality, its earthliness. It captures that sense of the new creation as being a place of heaven and earth combined. It's not the heaven and hell of Blake. It's heaven and earth. All the good things of the earth are there, only more their real selves. But it also has a real connection with the present. And I love that on the background in the left-hand side, you can see um, a meeting between the First Nations people of America, I I think the Lenape tribe, and William Penn, which was a real meeting in 1681 when they signed a Treaty of Perpetual Friendship. And Hicks was very struck by this. Um, and, and he thought that this treaty was putting into practice the kingdom of heaven now on earth, the, the, putting into practice the, the yet to come now. Um, obviously, history went on and probably, sadly, those treaties haven't, haven't been kept. Um, but Hicks was put that there as this idea of um, actually earthly lives transfigured by, by the gleam of heaven. And then the last picture I want to share is um, 
Andrei Rublev, the uh, Russian artist. This is an uh, icon from the 15th century that he painted. And um, in a way, I call this the highest heaven. I'll tell you why, why in one second. But this icon is, has got two names, actually. And one is called the Hospitality of Abraham because it depicts the three angels that visited Abraham at the tree of Mamre in Genesis 18. And Abraham invites them in and prepares a meal for them. And here they are sitting around the table. But the icon is actually also called the Trinity. And I think there's good evidence that Rublev intended it to be um, about the Trinity because the three angels bear symbolic reference to the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in iconography. And the most remarkable thing of this icon is that the three angels sit in a circle, the centre of which is a table with a cup and a calf's head, which are reminders of Jesus's death on the cross, but also of the Eucharist, the Holy Communion. And if you look at it, you see that the nearest edge of the table that faces you as you look at this painting is empty. And People have suggested that the idea is that the icon invites you, the viewer, to join the angels and sit at the table to complete the circle through the cup of Jesus' sacrifice. In other words, it's an invitation to join the Trinity at the wedding supper of the Lamb, to, as, as Peter says in, in 2 Peter 1.4, to participate in the divine nature. And the reason I call this the highest heaven is actually because in, in those, you know, the, the images of Dante that we read about, the, the you know, the, the, the complexity and then the universal form, or in, in, the, in the Florence Dome, you know, the, the very centre of things, in one sense, is, is just empty. And actually, um, you know, the, the, the thing that we're, the new creation is not just the earth brought together with heaven and the earth redeemed. It's not just having bodies and being resurrected. And we could look at um, Stanley Spencer's wonderful painting, The Resurrection of Church, um, in the Churchyard in Crookham, which I, I haven't got time to show you, but is, is amazing. It's not just resurrected bodies and being with one another, but actually, you know, right in the highest heaven is the eternal joy of being invited into relationship with the Trinity, um, being invited to sit at the table. And what will that be like? I'll just, I'll just finish with a little bit um, from, from my book. Um, in our earthly lives now, our experience of God is incomplete. But even if we are Christians and many temples where the Holy Spirit dwells on earth, our relationship with God is not yet fully what it will be when Jesus comes again. Even though those who receive God's gift of the Holy Spirit have already become a part of the new creation, the fullness of that new creation will not be realised until Jesus returns. Now we know the joy of being with God through a glass darkly, as if we're looking at him through a grimy, dirt-covered window. But when Jesus comes again, we'll be with God face to face. That's why the Apostle John, in his vision of the new creation, did not see a temple in the holy city. A building would only separate us from God's presence. Instead, as he says, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple because they will be dwelling with us right in our midst. It's hard to comprehend what this will be like, 
But if, as the Apostle John tells us, God is love, then knowing God face to face is nothing less than being welcomed into the very heart of love itself, the love that the three persons of the Trinity have shared with one another from eternity to eternity, the love that overflowed in the creation of the universe, the love that is present in all the good things we have ever enjoyed, the love that is the source of all the love that we have experienced in our relationships on earth. The love that we begin to experience as we trust Jesus and his care for us. This is the never-ending joy that Jesus offers us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmood is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmood is an annual arts conference hosted by The Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered.